Welcome to the Materialist Podcast, mini episode number four. What's on Nigel's shelves? <laughs> so, moving right along here with my little solo cast mini series. Um, and if this is your first time listening, the basic premise of this is the same as all of the Materialist Podcasts. Do objects have agency? But I'm sort of asking that question specifically about some of the material culture that I surround myself with on a daily basis. And so my wife and I are both ceramic artists and in turn, collectors of ceramic objects. And I thought this would be a fantastic opportunity being that we're staying at home because of COVID-19 to speak to some of the artists, some of the makers of these material objects that we have throughout our house. We have these display shelves that are covered with all kinds of different pieces of pottery, pieces of ceramic art. And I thought this would be a great opportunity to speak to some of these folks, try to dig into what was their motivation for becoming a maker uh, in the first place. So um, today's episode is really good, starring Mario Mutis, a local Gainesville ceramic artist. Um, and so here is my conversation with Mario. Enjoy. All right. Um, <laughs> my name is Mario Mutis. I am an adjunct professor at Santa Fe College here in Gainesville, Florida. I'm a ceramic artist that focuses a lot on making uh, sculptural, some functional, and musical instruments as well. I got... Um, my bachelor's in interdisciplinary sculpture and my master's in ceramics. So I like to bring in elements of both into my work. Uh, also architecture and um, anything really that finds my interest. I'd like yeah. to include that into my work. Well, I have to say, and I'm gonna butter your bread here, Mario, you are probably one of the most well-rounded artists I've ever met. The premise for these mini episodes are these shelves that we have in our living room. I'm sure you've seen them. Mm -hmm. um, we have a pretty, pretty good collection of like contemporary ceramics. Um, and so what I wanted to do is talk about this material culture in the fancy archaeological term that we surround ourselves with day to day in our, you know, particularly now that we're doing this stay at home thing because of COVID. I took this opportunity to try to find out a little bit more about these pieces that I have surrounded myself with for years now. Um, and so one piece that you made is this small little bowl, this little dish. It's very rich in design work and like painted on design work, rich in iconography. There's a lot going on here with uh, as small of a piece as it is and as simple of a piece as it is. There seems to be a lot going on here. But what is it about making of vessels in particular and sculpture too for that matter what is it about making of objects that is so important to you i mean it, it, to me it all comes down to education and to and to promote certain things that have not been promoted or to bring into the forefront of a dialogue in this case a visual language that mm -hmm. for for many years has been kind of um bit put on the back burner mm -hmm. and so I, I think the iconography for me is a way to utilize a language that exists right to speak a language and so others can learn it and others can understand that it's still very much present in our mm -hmm. in our lives um, a lot of the objects though that at least in Colombia that we use have a lot of historical 
uh, significance and have some historical kind of references, right? But in some ways, they've been kind of elements of the their uniqueness of their own personal language have been erased, right? Mm. Uh, this erasure, this erasing of language actually happens like with linguistics and in visual arts, right? Um, but there's hints that that this traditional my traditional language in the case though of a lot of the vessels that, you, that you're talking about it's called muiskubun the language itself muiskubun mm. means language of people mm. um, um, a lot of times this language is, is still very present so but i wanted to uh compare and contrast the item that you have yeah do uh, to this item that i'm holding and uh, you won't be able to see it but it is a the same shape roughly uh, the same size, it has the same function, which is to, to drink out of it. Uh, it's made out of a gourd. Like a squash. Like a squash, yeah, yeah. It's brown, light brown tan, but there's nothing else to it. Mm -hmm. So the tradition of us using this vessel, it's still here. Mm -hmm. But the language associated with it is gone. Mm. And it's not necessarily... Um, implemented or missed and think and I think we need to miss it and to miss it we need to be shown the alternative of what this item could look like if it spoke like we used to speak growing up in Colombia I went to uh, most schools over there they are running on the, on the same kind of platform of uh, education kind of like in the United States it's a standardized form of education um, and that standardized form of education focuses on teaching you one thing about the country, one thing about history and one thing about society. And it tends to be very, uh, very kind of guided towards um, like a neurocentric kind of point of view. Right. Um, and so we don't learn much about Colombian history until we get into the 1800s, which is the uh, independence, right? Prior to that, we just know stories, mm -hmm. right? And it's a country, and it's this conflict that occurs in, in, in you as a child, being educated by a school system and coming home and uh, being educated by your family. Right. And you're trying to figure out how these two histories play come together, right? Um, something that contributed to a lot of, of, of what my, where my visual language is influenced from is seeing my dad work, is mm. uh, seeing the things my grandfather would wear, the sweaters, the music he listened to, the contrast of living in a city with those traditions, like eating guinea pigs, mm -hmm. uh, where in the city in Bogota, it's not very common at all. Yeah, it's more common in the south. And so, and so, having that duality of that that kind of exposure of, of traditional Andean um, culture and 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 none, right? Yeah, and the Colombian, the standard Colombian culture, which is still influenced by certain ideal Andean ideals, museums also. My father is a, a jeweler, and mm. every time I would go to, into the city with him to, for him to buy material, my reward was he'll take me to a museum That's after awesome. six hours of walking. <laughs> right. <laughs> we get to do a little more walking. Yeah. <laughs> and, in, and in these places is where I was really exposed, and it's, it's a fortunate and unfortunate situation. We find items that were not meant to be seen by us, right. but they're here because of the circumstances we find ourselves in. And they can be used as a tool of education, not entertainment, I think. Mm -hmm. I think education is more important. And what I got out of them wasn't entertainment, it was education, to understand and ask questions. Why, why are we looking at this? Why people are not wearing this? Why aren't you not wearing it, Dad? Why isn't your hair the same way as theirs? Mm -hmm. And why and why and why? Yeah. Little by little, these questions is what kind of led me to 
create what I create. Yeah, I, I imagine those conflicts were probably pretty staggering, especially as a, a young kid who's kind of just trying to understand the world in general, right? Mm -hmm. You know, coming of age, but also seeing these different cultures that are within one one place and clearly one is the dominant clearly one has the power um, versus the other and trying to understand that conflict within your head within the brain of a kid like I could see how it'd be pretty tough to kind of work your way through that in a way it was it was almost the norm for for everybody yeah. there you, yeah. you you grow up understanding that that duality and I think I think a lot of people then make a decision whether yeah. to really explore something or to really try to understand your roots or your, your even your family, mm -hmm. right? Because a lot of times I didn't know my family until I asked questions. Yeah, yeah, same. I didn't know, yeah, <laughs> and so it's 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 asking these questions that led me to like really really push me to almost answer them, mm -hmm. or at least uh, not wish something was different, but actually make something different. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So one thing that I really remember is your master's thesis show. I mean, this large structure that you built with the, a couple of altars that were there. Can you talk a little bit about like the importance of those specific altars, like what they were there for and how displaying those kinds of things? And like you said, educating the public, how that is important to you and your artwork. So that piece right there is one of the reasons why I like pottery and functional ceramics so much because mm -hmm. it's it's moments where you have an item that exists that has to have a purpose in your life um beyond what i was used to or what i was taught in terms of like what sculpture is it's something right. to contemplate upon and i like items that act with you or for you and and that installation that that two-story building was about um making certain sculptural objects fu have function Mm. have a function and one that contrasted a certain kind of preconceived notion of of in that case what i was displaying was also the coca leaf right so the bottom of the of the store the first story was a, a souvenir shop that sold right. that sold <laughs> pigs, um, the sexy pigs the, <laughs> the sexy pigs yeah <laughs> uh, you know i i kind of as i go back and forth travel back and forth in colombia I, I get to start to see a, a slightly different way every time than what I was growing up to because sometimes you get used to seeing something and you don't really see it for mm -hmm. what it is. And um, we sell uh, certain things to represent us in a, in, a, in a way that is more for profit than for, you know, what does it do? What does it make mm -hmm. us? How is how this presenting us to the outside? Right. My friend Rafael... A great ceramic artist uh, used to tell me, Mario, you and I are the ambassadors of our people. Mm -hmm. Because however we act, that's how people are going to assume the rest of us are going to act. Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the difficulty of dealing with like stereotypes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, so, like, and so like, you know, if we, we are the ambassadors of, of, our, of our people, of your family even. Mm -hmm. And so these items became almost like that. These little piggies, uh, these little sexy piggies, drunken piggy banks made out of clay. Um, these items that looked like they were pre-Columbian, but then you look look at them and you realize that there's a mixture of everything from North, Central, and South in one item, just because <laughs> they're trying to sell a look. Yeah. Uh, and on the back it says authentic pre-Columbian ceramics, even though it was made two, two weeks ago. Yeah. Um, and so 
that bottom story was was to show you something that already exists, something that you're familiar with. And in that first story, Coca-Cola was big, a big part of it as, as the commercialized and bastardized version of the leaf. Mm-hmm. Um, above was a shrine to the leaf and to those who want to consume the leaf. And the coca leaf was present in the entire duration of the exhibit, which I thought was going to be the hardest part for me to achieve, considering that... Um, it's kind of uh, maybe illegal, maybe to some extent. <laughs> yeah, only a little bit. <laughs> um, at least right as of right now, it is illegal. Um, yeah. It wasn't when I did it. Uh, laws change. People in power change their mind. But right. the leaf was there so that people could actually consume it and have yeah. an have an alternative experience of what it uh, of what culture it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, I couldn't agree more about those those objects that. You know, I've been to Peru several several times to see my family, and we'd stop in at these little touristy places that claim, you know, authentic um, Peruvian Andean crafts. And you go in there, and 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 if you just look at it with without looking too hard, it really seems like you said, like, oh, this is authentic, handmade, traditional crafts. And then you look a little bit closer, it's it's pretending to be something that it's not but i see the power in that and how that can impact people that don't want to go a step further to try to understand what they're really looking at just superficially they see something and they're like oh this is representative of the culture i'm going to take a little bit of you know traditional pre-columbian andean culture home with me but they don't notice the made in china you know completely wrong iconography you know all this wrong stuff that's on there yeah it kind of reminds me am i allowed to curse yeah absolutely <laughs> okay percent. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of reminds me of when i was in china i went to walmart and i mean the same situation that happens with language with visual language and iconography being mixed into something that's not. I saw it with, with written language. I went to Walmart on the kids section, a t-shirt said F- baby and <laughs> in English. And I thought, I'm like, that's a, what? Like somebody didn't know what, what they're doing. They just like the appearance right. of those letters. Just like some people get tattooed, you know, on themselves in, in Chinese <laughs> you know, moonlight. And it's, you know, probably not. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I wanted to give people the chance to, to indulge in that with the idea that there's something above on the second story um, that they may have not ever experienced before. Cause I think it's, uh, it's important to give uh, people choices and, and a juxtaposition of, of the alternative. Right. Absolutely. And, and, and the levels, it was so deep in many ways because the, um, the levels of existence are significant to like the pre-Columbian maybe origin, universal origin story. Is a, isn't that correct? Right. Yeah. yeah but so. Levels above and levels below. Right, right, right. We're stuck in the middle. Yeah, <laughs> we sure as shit are, man. Um, <laughs> so talk a little bit about the importance of music. I mean, this seems like an obvious question and how music fits in. And um, you make a lot of your own instruments. Um, talk a little bit about that and like the importance of making your own instruments or uh, music in the art that you're trying to create. So I, I don't see, you know, I started exploring musical instruments when I was in undergrad in terms of using clay because mm-hmm. um, I enjoyed having that, that ability to transform a really squishy soft material into something solid. And I've always played flute. 
and guitar and charango. But um, with the musical instruments, I found that another, another vehicle to kind of talk, mm. right? Another, another thing to kind of put imagery on and one that produce another kind of interaction between people. Not only, it was not about just consuming something from this vessel or, or grabbing things from this jar, um, but it's now working together to, to create something, the instrument and the, and the player. Um, and so I just see that I think any, any, any form of, of uh, any vehicle that I can find to kind of drive the idea of language, the importance of language, the importance of, of, of communicating and educating people on this language, I'll, I will use. And as music is one of those, I think somebody asked me recently what my favorite things are in art. And it, and it dawned on me, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but I realized music is number one. Yeah. Even though I'm not as um, outspoken with it in terms I don't record and I don't play, uh, my website doesn't have really any music-related things except a few flutes. But I find it's one of those mediums that, to me, speaks a lot. Yeah. Um, and I use that energy and I and I channel it into like making things out of clay, making things out of wood or metal. And I realize that every time I'm making something, I'm listening to music. Yeah. And so it's it's more of a inspiration um, and a tool for uh, communication. That's a good place to close it out, man. That's really fantastic. Tell the audience where they can find out more about you and your art, websites, et cetera. I'm pretty sure I did pay my website bill, so it should be you. <laughs> <laughs> as far as you know. <laughs> as far as I know, you can. Uh, it's marioamutis.com. Uh, so marioamutis.com. Mario my Mutis. name. Yeah, my name, my middle initial, and my last name. Okay. Um, and you can find in there a lot of uh, everything that I do, including student work. I like promoting my students' work, and, and you get to see a lot of uh, the most recent things I've been working on. Cool. Thank you, Mario, for being on the podcast. Thank you, Nigel. Thanks, Mario, for being on the podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time. Listeners, if you would like more information on Mario and his artwork, please go to marioamutis.com. That's M-A-R-I-O-A-M-U-T-I-S.com. You can also Google Mario Mutis Ceramics, and uh, a lot of good information comes up. So, And uh, on behalf of my regular co-host, Becky O'Sullivan, from the Florida Public Archaeology Network, West Central Region, thank you very much. If you would like more information on FPAN, go to fpan.us. Thanks again to Have Gun Will Travel for the use of their song. Please check out Have Gun Will Travel's website at hgwtmusic.com. You can holler at Becky or I anytime by emailing us at thematerialistpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on all the social media, of course, Facebook, Instagram, and everything. So please check it out and tune in next Friday for another mini episode. So thanks again. We'll catch you all on the flippity flip. <laughs>